Every week we go to the scriptures because it's there that the person and work of Jesus are most clearly revealed. And our sermon passage this week is coming from 1 John 2, verses 1 through 6. But before we, before we read, would you pray with me, please? Gracious God, you have granted us the rich and precious jewel of your holy word. Assist us with your spirit that the same word may be written on our hearts to, your, to our everlasting comfort to reform us to renew us according to your own image, to build us up and edify us into the perfect dwelling place of your spirit, sanctifying and increasing in us all heavenly virtues. Grant this, O Heavenly Father, for your Son's sake, in whose name we pray. Amen. Hear the word of the Lord from 1 John chapter 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Peace be with you. Good morning, Sojourn. Uh, my name is Paul Ramsey. I am one of the pastors here. It's a joy to be with you this morning, to be preaching God's word, uh, to see all of your faces here at our 10.30 a.m. gathering. If you're new here, we're so glad that you've joined us uh, for this Sunday. I look forward to meeting with you after the gathering. Feel free to come up and say hi. Um, go grab lunch with somebody afterwards. We would love to fold you into the life of our church uh, together, especially coming out of a season um, as we are in the process of coming out of a season of, of such isolation. So glad you're here with us. Um, to you who are online, so glad that you guys are joining us on there as well. Happy Father's Day to everyone. As a father, I love having a day set aside to celebrate those of us who are fathers. Um, happy Father's Day. Dads, thank you for all that you do. Congratulations to those of you who are, for whom this is your first Father's Day. And I also wanna say, um, just make a, a brief mention that I know that as we celebrate days like this here at Sojourn, we know that for, for, for many, Father's Day is a, is a difficult day as well. Um, it could be a day that has some mixed celebration and sadness, and we don't want our celebration of Father's Day. I don't want my saying Happy Father's Day to you to, to compound that pain in any way. Um, I want to fully celebrate um, the fathers in the room and let you know that if today is painful, know that we see you, that, that mo more importantly, God sees you and is with you uh, uh, as your comfort today. The sermon series, we're going to jump straight in today. The sermon series that we just began a couple of weeks ago is a series through the book of 1 John. As you heard Dodds read our passage at the beginning of 1 John chapter 2. 1 John is a letter uh, written, it's towards the end of the New Testament. Feel free, the words of the actual passage, of the sermon passage will be on the screen behind you, behind me. You can also open the Pew Bible. Uh, uh, to, it's close to the end of the Bible. Uh, it's written by the Apostle John. And Brandon preached these last two weeks, opening our series through this letter, and he explained to us a little bit about what John is doing. John is a pastor, 
in the early church. And he wrote this letter with a particular angst. Uh, There are some who have separated from the church who are teaching different things about who Jesus is and who they are as people. Um, And and he is uh, really emphasizing these things that are to him of great importance to their faith, to their understanding of who Jesus is, to their life together as the church. And last week in particular, Brandon preached on what I think is an amazing passage. In last week's passage, which was the second half of 1 John chapter 1, uh, John is addressing what it means to be a Christian, to walk in the light, uh, as he says. And then he says something pretty remarkable that I want to pause and, 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 and look at for a moment before we get to our passage, because our passage really builds on what John is saying uh, in this, uh, at the end of chapter 1. John says this, verse 8 of chapter 1, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And here's why that's remarkable. As Christians, we believe that Jesus died to take away our sins and that when he rose from the dead, he ushered in what the Bible calls a new creation, the new creation. And when you come to Jesus and you are born again, you are raised to new life in him, joining in with this new creation. You may have heard the verse from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old has passed away, the new has come. And this is a wonderful and glorious reality. Being a Christian means far more than simply subscribing to a new philosophy, having a different mindset or worldview than people who aren't Christians. It means that you have been reborn. You've been made new. And hearing this, we may be tempted to think that the necessary outcome of this is that if you're really a Christian, then you must be therefore sinless because sin has been dealt with. Because sin has been dealt with, you had better live a life without sin. But then we come to 1 John chapter one and we read in verse eight, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is decidedly not in us. So rather than thinking or saying that because sin has been dealt with, we don't have to concern ourselves with sin at all anymore. Instead, we read here that we are to take sin as Christians very seriously. Because if we do and we confess our sins, verse nine, we have been given the promise that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of its effects. And now do you see the difference? One of the errors that it's easy to make is that a lot of, Christians that I've spoken with think that before you believe in Jesus, Jesus, sin is a big deal for you. And then after you believe in Jesus, sin no longer is a big deal. And while that's somewhat true in an objective sense, as God sees it, that is quite the opposite when you're speaking subjectively of our experience of sin. I grew up in an atheist home, uh, to put it this way, I grew up in an atheist home, and I still remember very clearly what it was like to not be a Christian. And if you don't have a similar story to me, if you don't remember a day when you didn't know the Lord, um, then it's probably helpful for you to understand that people who aren't Christian usually don't care about the fact that you think that they're sinning. They don't, people who aren't Christian don't think that sin is a very big deal. So speaking from our perspective, it's not that sin goes from being a problem without Jesus to no longer being a problem with Jesus. The problem is quite the opposite. It's that before you believe in Jesus, sin is not a big problem to you. You don't give it the weight that it deserves. You don't fight it or, you, or see it as a big deal. But when you believe in Jesus for who he is, the son of God himself, who gave his life to pay the penalty for your sins, then you have only then begun 
to understand how big of a deal sin is. You have only then begun to learn what it means to hate sin. Indeed, to be a Christian means to take sin very seriously and to hate it, first and foremost, your own. Psalm 119, through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Proverbs 8, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Romans 12, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, hate what is evil. So rather than seeing yourself as sinless, you must see that sin remains present within you even after you are born again, and you must take it seriously. How? You confess your sins, trusting that the Lord is faithful and just to forgive you. And so the reason I wanted to spend a minute looking back at that is because John basically continues when we come to chapter two with the same thought process. So let's jump straight forward to chapter two, verse one. My dear children, John begins, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So right away, we see Jesus doing something very, simil- very similar to what he was doing in verses five through 10 of chapter one. There, he said, walk in the light rather than the darkness. But when you do sin, you ought to confess your sins. Here in chapter two, he says, I write these things to you so that you may not sin, walk in the light. But if you do sin, you have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And what he says here, of course, about who Jesus is, is I think one of the most incredible truths in the whole Bible. Brandon included this first verse of chapter two in his sermon last week, um, and I'm so glad that he did. I often find that when I'm preaching a sermon, I think, man, this is the most important thing in the whole Bible for the church. And then the next week, I like, no, this is the most important thing for the whole church. But this week, I think I'm right. I think this is the most important thing in the Bible for us as new covenant believers we're given a key picture of who Jesus is for us today. When you confess your sins, here's the picture. When you confess your sins, you don't go to God alone. You go before God with an advocate. I remember my first time standing in front of a judge, guilty. Hasn't happened that many times. It's only happened twice. And they were both traffic violations. Uh, But this first time I knew that I was guilty and it was the kind of infraction that I couldn't just pay by mail for. That wasn't an option. I had to go to court. I was 17, which in Atlanta, Georgia, where I grew up, is just old enough to let other people drive in the car with you who are not your family members. And I was driving with a friend of mine up to our summer camp when I just flew past a speed trap in broad daylight. It was pretty bad. Uh, The number that the police officer wrote on that speeding ticket was very generous to me, and it was still worth losing my license for a year. My friend who was with me told me not to worry because her dad was a lawyer and he would be able to help me. And so I tried to picture that conversation. Um, Yes, sir, Uh, I hear you're a lawyer. Well, I was driving and your daughter was in the car with me uh, and I was driving very safely, just very fast. Uh, Would you help me out of this ticket? (laughs) So he, uh, but amazingly, so I was picturing that like, oh my goodness, how am I gonna do this? But she talked to him and he invited me over and I talked to him, had that conversation. And sure enough, he agreed to help me. And I hope that you've never been to court before but if you have, I hope that you had a lawyer with you. 
I will never forget the feeling. We walked up to the bench when my case was called, walked up to the, the, the judge, and, uh, and the judge looked at me and asked a question, and the lawyer answered for me. I, was, I had no idea what to say. The lawyer answered for me. And there were a couple of times that the lawyer looked at me and said, sure, you can speak. Um, but then after two minutes, um, this lawyer had somehow negotiated a bargain that allowed me to keep my license. We walked out. He shook my hand with a smile, said, now, Paul, it's very nice to meet you. Don't ever do that again. The French word for lawyer is avocat. Um, the, the Spanish word for lawyer is abogado. Um, it's the same Latin word where we get the word advocate from. And that's what the lawyer does. They advocate for you in the context of a complex legal system. And that is the picture that we're given here about what Jesus is doing for you and for me right now. Hebrews 7:25 describes Jesus' advocacy this way. It says, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Verse one says, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And what does that mean? It means that when we come to God in confession, one of the ways that we can understand what's happening is that we are entering the divine courtroom to answer charges against us. And Jesus is right there with us, walking in with a smile on his face, making a defense for us before the Father. I remember walking into the courtroom that day with Danny's dad and the judge asked me the first question. If I had been by myself, I would have had nothing. I've said, yes, sir. Yes, your honor. Absolutely, your honor. Yes, send me to jail. But the thing is, I didn't have to say anything. But if you imagine walking into the divine courtroom, coming before the almighty God, the creator of heaven and earth with a charge against you and you know you're guilty, what do you do? Do you open your mouth and speak in your defense? No, you fall flat on your face like Isaiah did in chapter six when he came into the throne room. He wasn't even being accused of anything and he fell flat on his face, said, woe is me for I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips and I'm amidst the people of unclean lips. I'm good as dead. But you don't have to. You don't have to go into that divine courtroom and speak for yourself. Jesus is there with you speaking for you, making your defense for you, saying that one is mine. And listen, it, it goes even further than that. More than, more than simply advocating for us with the Father as a lawyer or sponsor of some sort, this is where that analogy breaks down. Jesus is the one who personally paid our debt himself. Verse two, the, Jesus is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Propitiation is a fancy word for atonement. Atonement is a fancy word for substitute, substitutionary sacrifice. There's a story in the Old Testament about Abraham who had a beloved son named Isaac. And Isaac was the child of promise, the child through whom God would bring blessings to the whole world. But then to test Abraham, God said, you need to go sacrifice Isaac. You need to give him up to me. So Abraham probably confused, walked up and he had just before walked up on the mountain and just before he took Isaac's life, the Lord interrupted and said, okay, stop. I see that you are faithful. I have provided a substitute. And there was a ram caught in a thicket that came over and died in Isaac's place so that Isaac didn't have to. That is atonement, that substitutionary atonement. That is what it means that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. What John tells us here is that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, indeed for the sins of the whole world. In God's perfect holiness and justice, sin must be dealt with and the wage of sin we're told in the scriptures, we're told about the wage of sin, the penalty for sin is death. 
That was the warning to Adam and Eve. You probably are familiar with it. In the day you eat of the fruit of the tree, you shall surely die. The same has been true ever since. Every sin, the wages of that sin is death. And that's exactly why God the Father sent God the Son into the world as a human being so that as a human, he could incur the wages of sin to pay the debt for us. This is the very heart of the gospel, the good news of Christianity. Because God so loved the world, he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him doesn't have to die for their sins, but they can live because Christ died. And this verse, I think, deserves at least two points of clarification. First, I want to just clarify here and observe for us that this does not mean that somehow Jesus is the nice one and the Father is the mean one. That Jesus is the one who extends grace and the Father is stern. Somehow the Father is reluctant to give his mercy that Jesus has to get on his neg, or excuse me, get on his knees and beg to his Father to forgive us. That's not the picture that Jesus being our advocate is intended to communicate. Later on in 1 John, in chapter four, John reminds us that we have seen and testify that the father has sent the son. The father has sent the son to be the savior of the world. So in other words, the father is the one who sent the son. He's not just in on this whole mercy plan. He's the initiator of it. It's because God so loved the world, not just Jesus, God, the father, God, the son, their heart is unified in this whole mercy for humanity thing. The picture we get throughout the Bible of what happens in heaven when we confess is not a picture of reluctant concession. Okay, fine, I'll give you mercy. That's not the picture we're given. We're given a picture of exuberant joy, the father rejoicing because his son, his daughter has come back. It's the first clarification. The second clarification is this. Uh, You probably saw this as we read the passage and wondered about it. John writes here in verse two that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. What is, what is John talking about there? It's not the only time John uses this phrase in John's gospel. John the Baptist is described, uh, describes Jesus as the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John 3.16, the famous verse says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. First John 4, which I just read, the father sent the son to be the savior of the world. Here's what John is saying. John is saying that there has been a big shift in God's dealings with the world, especially for John, who is a Jew, and for any other Jewish Christian, this would have been particularly notable. The sacrifices that the Jews were used to were for a particular people. They were for Israel. They were instructed to make sacrifices to make atonement for their sins and that the law was given to a single nation. This system of atonement was given for a single nation, the nation of Israel. Here though, Jesus, as the sacrificial lamb of God, didn't just die to be the propitiation for the sins of Israel. He died to be the propitiation for the sins of the whole world, every nation under heaven. This calls us back to the promise God made to Abraham, that Abraham's family would become a blessing to all of the families of the earth. The reason Jesus can say in the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations, is precisely because His sacrificial death made atonement for the sins of every nation. The whole world is welcome. Jesus' sacrifice echoes out, breaking down the walls of the physical temple in Jerusalem and into the whole world and throughout time. This is a beautiful reality. 
but let's look for a moment at what John isn't saying. If we look ahead to chapter five of 1 John, John writes this, he says, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. So when we read that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world, this doesn't mean that every person will be saved. While his sacrifice is offered universally, his sacrifice we know will not be applied universally. It must be appropriated by faith. And there are some who will not do this. To consider the courtroom image again, think about Jesus as the perfect public defender. Here in the US, you have the right to an attorney. And if you don't have an attorney, the court will appoint an attorney for you. But you also have the right to serve as your own attorney. You can turn them down and say, no thanks, I don't want the attorney that you've provided. I'm gonna defend myself. The same is true with Jesus. Central to John's teaching is the paramount importance of belief in Jesus. His sacrifice is generous and it is more than enough to cover the sins of the entire world should every human being confess in Jesus. But receiving the advocacy of the son before the father is not an automatic thing. It must be appropriated through faith. It is yours, this advocacy is yours through faith in Christ alone. As one writer put it, his death was sufficient to deal with the sins of the whole world, but his sacrifice does not become effective until people believe in him. Looking at the words of Jesus himself, at the end of his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says some very sobering words. I preached on them just a couple of months ago. Listen to Matthew chapter seven, verses 21 through 23. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus' propitiatory work, his substitutionary sacrifice is plenty to cover every sin that has ever been committed, but it must be appropriated by faith. And this brings us to the question that John turns to in verses three through six. What does it mean to have faith? What does it mean to know God? How can you know that you know God? John has talked about having Jesus as an advocate. This advocacy is available to the whole world. And the question is who actually gets it? Who gets Jesus's advocacy? That's why he turns to address this question, verse three. And by this, we know that we have come to know him. What's the question? How can we come? How can we know though? Okay, John, you're telling me that I need Jesus's advocacy before the father. How can I know that I have it? He says, here's how you know that you have come to know him if you keep his commandments. If you notice here, it's all about knowing God personally. And, the, and if you notice knowing God, every time John refers to it in this passage is a verb. Rather than referring to knowledge of God as though it is something that you can have a certain quantity of in your brain in order to be saved, John instead refers to knowing God as an active process, an engagement with God himself. It's a relationship.
J.I. Packer is a famous theologian who passed away a few years ago and he wrote a book called Knowing God and the entire purpose of the book is to define the difference between knowing about God and knowing God personally. John is addressing in this letter those who have separated from the church and are claiming to have a secret and hidden knowledge of God. This is an idea that eventually develops into Gnosticism, if you're familiar with that term. Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, which is the word for knowledge. And in, you know, in short, the teaching of Gnosticism is that you overcome the world, all that is wrong with it, with you through having some sort of secret knowledge. To this teaching, John gives a resounding no. I could care less about the knowledge that you have, John is saying. I don't care what you know, I care about who you know. How do we get Christ as our advocate? It's about knowing God personally, not just knowing facts about him, not just being able to recognize him through circumstances or in the lives of other people, but knowing him personally for yourself, having real fellowship with him, walking in his light, as Brandon talked about last week, being in him, as we're told in verse five. There's a story uh, in the gospel of John where Jesus is interacting with one of the 12 apostles, one of the 12 disciples, Philip. John 14, Philip is, is one of his closest disciples. He's been with Jesus for years. And here on the eve of Jesus's betrayal, the night that he was betrayed, Philip comes up to Jesus and says this. He says, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. And listen to Jesus's response to Philip. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me? As one writer put it here, knowing Jesus, knowing Jesus involved more than even being closely acquainted with him, which is something that Philip had experienced. It involved perceiving his true identity, a true understanding of his nature. And what does it mean to have a true understanding of his nature? For starters, John has already addressed this a little bit in chapter one. Those who walk in the light are those who understand God's character. What does walking in the light mean? It means that they have truth in them and the truth that he addresses in chapter one is the truth of acknowledging that they have sin. And so if they're confessing their sins to God through Jesus, then they are demonstrating that they have a, a, an accurate understanding of God. If you confess your sins and flee to Christ as your savior, that savior, that is drawing near and knowing God in relationship. As J.R. Packer, who I mentioned just a moment ago, once summarized it, he said, he that has learned to feel his sins and to trust Christ as savior has learned the two hardest and greatest lessons in Christianity. And so there's confession of sin itself, which is obedience to God's commands and demonstrates that you know and trust God. But John goes even further, verse three. By this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. And he expands, verse four, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. Let's pause there. John's assertion is clear. He's saying that you can have assurance that you know God if you obey or keep his commandments. And there's a few observations that I want to make here. For one, I find it interesting that rather than defining or expounding upon the nature of what it means to know God, 
John is instead more concerned with the way of life that accompanies knowing God. Does that make sense? He blows right past the phrase, here's how we know that we know him, and he jumps straight to a lifestyle comment, an ethical comment. If we, if we know him, then we will do this. And he just kind of blows by and doesn't describe what it means to actually know him. And there's a rather good and, excuse me, a good and I think rather simple reason for this. I think it's because talk is cheap. It's far too easy to talk about how much you know God and how wonderful God is. But if your life doesn't look any different from the world around you, or if your life doesn't look like the life of Jesus who was obedient to his heavenly father, then you are plain and simple a liar. And this is so important. It is far too easy for us as people to fall in love with talk talking about God, talking about what God says, talking about the things that God loves. And of course, that is all very good to do. I do that all the time. We do that as a church all the time together, but we must beware of falling in love with talk itself because talk alone is cheap. We must also do the things that God commands us to do. That's what John is getting at here. James, another of the apostles says this in James chapter one. He says, if anyone thinks he's religious, and doesn't bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Later on, James chapter two, he says, we can't be just hearers of the word, we must be doers also. This is why, this is why John is so concerned about the way of life of those who claim to know God, because we would love nothing more than for John to give us more words to pontificate about, to, to just wax eloquent about. The real question is, are you confessing your sin and appealing to Jesus Christ for mercy? Are you seeking to live your life in line with God's word, with Jesus's example? If not, then I must tell you, brother, sister, you don't know God the way that you think that you do. And this is so important. John is clear without any caveats that salvation is not through some sort of secret knowledge in itself but through knowing God, which is a relationship first. It's a relationship that affects every part of your life. Verses three through six are basically John repeating the same thing three times, three different ways to get at the same point. Verse three, now by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Again, verses four and five, whoever says I know him, but doesn't keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected talk about that in a moment. And again, five and six, verses five and six, by this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And notice what each of these clauses focuses on. You might say, well, it focuses on being obedient, but what I think is most striking in these verses is his emphasis on relationship. Verse three, by this, we know that we have come to know him. Verse four, whoever says, I know him, Verse five, by this, we may know that we are in him. And to understand this, I think it's important to observe together that this phrase, knowing God, doesn't appear for the first time here in John. It's not a new concept in the Bible. When John says we have come to know God, it's important for us to know that for a first century Jew to use the phrase, we have come to know God, is something that is loaded with meaning. 
it brings us back to a promise of Jeremiah that I want to read for you right now. Listen to these words from the prophet Jeremiah. This is hundreds of years before Jesus came, talking about what Jesus was going to come and do. Jeremiah writes this. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each brother, each his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Stop. So Jeremiah promises, God promises through the prophet Jeremiah, I will write my law on their hearts. You won't have to teach one another saying, know me because they will know me for I have forgiven their iniquity and remembered their sin no more. So when John says we have come to know him, he is saying this, this kind of knowledge that Jeremiah talked about coming in the future is here now with Jesus. By the, by the presence of the spirit, we can know God personally. And this kind of knowledge, John says, will demonstrate itself through us actually keeping God's commandments because it will change our hearts. And this is where I wanna pause and engage with what I think is the main point of this passage for us, where I think that this passage comes to a head with not only our culture, but with the human condition. Like I said just a moment ago, it's easy to talk about these things. It's easy to talk about, okay, if we know God, then we, should, we need to be keeping his commandments. But if you're anything like me, when you read and start to actually internalize verses three through six, the hair might begin to actually, to, to stand up on the back of your neck. Just verse three, the word commandments. The apostle John's, exhortation to keep God's commandments is something that we need to pause on and engage with for just a moment together. For one, you may hear this and think, hang on, I thought Christianity was supposed to be different. You told me that the Bible is not a book of rules, that Christianity is not a religion, but a relationship. But here we are again, talking about obeying God's commandments. Same song, second verse. I remember people saying things like that to me when I, wasn't, when I wasn't a Christian, when they were sharing the gospel with me, they would say, it's not about following rules, it's about relationship. They'd say, if you're focused on following rules, then you're being legalistic. That's, not, that's legalism, not faith. But this is where I think a big clarification is in order for us. I think we need to revisit for just a moment how we think about what we call the old covenant, the law that God gave to Moses. Here's what I mean. It's, it's frequently believed that the old covenant was a law with a bunch of rules and the new covenant, the rule book got thrown out and we just are free to love. But it's not that the old covenant is the one with commandments and the new covenant is the one without commandments as though the new covenant somehow brings relief from God's bad commandments because God's commandments for us are good. They reveal the heart of God. And to live in line with God's commandments is to demonstrate a relationship with God. Breaking God's commandments is to demonstrate the absence of a relationship with God. To think about it in terms of the ancient Israelites, they had a spiritual relationship with God. God had chosen them. 
They were God's chosen people. His, his promise to Abraham was that he would bless all the families of the earth through Israel, but their, fail, their repeated failure to live out the commandments of God led to him kicking them out of the promised land. Communion and fellowship with God, which is perhaps the best definition of what it means to live in the promised land, requires obedience to God's commands. Let's say my wife asks me to take out the trash. My wife doesn't give me commands. She asks me questions, but let's say she asks me to take out the trash. Not for a moment would you or I reduce my faithfulness in our marriage or my love for my wife as to the question of whether or not I listened to her when she asked me to take out the trash. I would never reduce it to, to this. But what if she asked me to take out the trash and I say, you know what? I'm just not gonna do that because I don't see it as very important. So I don't. She might think, okay, maybe you didn't hear me. And so she may say it again or she may do it herself and then try again next time. If I keep ignoring her though, after a while, she'll start to think, is he listening to me? And if it keeps going on, she'll start to say, I guess he just doesn't think it's that important to listen to what I have to say, which is another way of saying, I guess he doesn't really care about me that much. And she would be right. I've chosen my opinion over hers. I care more about myself than I care about her. And here's the thing, taking out the trash makes sense to me, right? She asked me, it makes sense that I should do that you know, as a, as a part of our household, but it's not fully necessary for me to understand, right? What if she asked me to take out the trash every time it's half full? She has some reason that I disagree with. Well, it's to keep the flies out or to keep the top of the trash can from getting dirty or something like that. I might even disagree with her, right? That's not why the flies are here. Or if we get the top dirty, I can just wipe it off. But if she's insistent, even after we talk about it and I make my case and you know, even if we have to pay $6 a month for trash bags instead of $3 a month, and I am just convinced that we are wasting $3 a month, you know what I do? I'm going to take out the trash when it gets half full because I love her. And that's what you do when you love somebody. You listen to them. By the way, Lindsay doesn't do that. That's not a rule in our house. That's just a made-up example. But you see, when God's people repeatedly broke his commandments, choosing themselves over him, you can understand why he kicked them out of the promised land. Their actions spoke louder than their words. They came before him with their sacrifices and their worship, and he said, I despise your sacrifices. They communicated quite clearly with God that he was just not that important to him, to, to them. So in that sense, you can see that the commandments of God, even in the old covenant, weren't a bad thing or a wrong thing for God to do with his people. In fact, they were an extension of God's relationship with his people. They, they were an ex he didn't have to extend a relationship to them, but he did. He extended his relationship. The problem is that God's people wouldn't do it. They couldn't do it. They couldn't live like they were created to, like God asked them to, because they were bound to sin. And so rather than make things better, the law instead, according to the Apostle Paul, in some ways made things worse. And that's where you get some of the language in the New Testament that talks about how great it is that we are no longer under the law and so forth. But it's so easy to misunderstand that and think that the writers of the New Testament are saying that the Old Testament law was a bad thing. To say it bluntly, the law wasn't bad, the people were bad. The Apostle Paul is the biblical writer who writes some of the strongest language against the law and, and about the negative role of the law in the lives of God's people. 
Some of the most colorful language he gives is in Romans chapter seven, where he describes the law as something that held us captive. The law aroused our sinful passions and how in Christ we have been freed from the law. Even here though, when he uses some of his strongest language, he pauses because he knows that, he knows what they'll think about what he's saying. And then he asks the rhetorical question, Romans seven, verse seven, what shall we say then? That the law is sin? And his response to his own question, by no means. He then goes on to wax on about how good the law is and that it is sin, specifically the sin within us that twists the law. Verse 10, the commandment that promised life proved to be death to me for, why? For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. Later on, verse 22, Paul says, I delight in the law of God and in my inward being. Paul and the other apostles are, are relieved that the law of God, the commandments of God, the word of God for us has taken a different place in the life of God's people. And they're very specific about what they mean. It's no longer a captor. It's no longer a tool for our sin to, to seize and use as an opportunity to kill us. Instead, the law has now been written on our hearts. We have been filled with the Holy Spirit who works in us to will and to work for God's good pleasure. And let me speak very specifically here because this is so important. This is a right understanding of the promise made to God's people through the prophet Jeremiah. When the new covenant was established through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, as Jeremiah promised, the law of God now became written upon the hearts of those who are his. Their hearts are changed and now because of that, they will obey. Therefore, in the words of one commentator, keeping the commandments is not a condition for knowing God, but a sign that one does know God follow with me. This is the most important part. Keeping the commandments is not a condition of knowing God, as though you have to get the commandments right first, and then it is through obeying the commandments that you will come to know God first. Instead, keeping the commandments is a sign that one does already know God, that God has changed your heart because he loves you. Throughout our passage for today, knowing God comes first. That is the condition. And then the result, the thing that is a symptom of knowing God, which is caused by knowing God, is that we will keep his commandments, that we will walk in the way that Jesus walked. The inverse is also true. If you do not keep his commandments, then that is evidence enough for John to conclude that you are a liar if you say that you know God. Which brings me to the second clarification. We've talked about that's keeping the commandments. Now, what about, what does it mean? This is kind of the final clarification. What does it mean to not keep the commandments, as we read about in verse 4. John's words may sound somewhat confusing, right? On the one hand, we're told that the truth is not in us if we ever think that we are sinless. Chapter 1, the truth is not in us. If you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself. The truth is not in you. On the other hand, we're also told that the truth is not in us if we don't keep his commands. If we don't keep his commands, then we don't know God. So what do we make of this? It's not actually that complicated. Looking back at verses one and two of our passage, this is where John draws these two things together very clearly. Verse one, my, my, my dear children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. John's saying, guys, don't sin. Pursue obedience to God. You can do it now. But then verse two, he says, but if anyone does sin, know that you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. You see what John does there? He says, strive for obedience. 
And while you do so, have a humble spirit that Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. Have a humble spirit that is quick to confess when you fail to obey perfectly. If you do sin, know that that sin is a big deal. Because it is a big deal, come and bring it to the Father so that it can be dealt with. And know that when you bring it to the Father, he is faithful and just to forgive you. When you bring it to the Father, Jesus is there advocating for you. God doesn't require perfect sinlessness. It's having a penitent heart when you do sin that is what God requires. Psalm 51, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. He asked for it there in the old. He asked for it here in the new. If you do sin, come back to God. He will be faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse you. With all that in mind, it's no surprise here that John points us to love, specifically to the love of God. Verse five, whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. Perfected is a word that means completed. There's an end goal sense to the term. We could also translate this verse, when someone is able to keep God's word, that is where the love of God has succeeded in bringing about what it was intended to bring about. And here's what this means. This means that the, God sets his love on us for a purpose. He sets his love on you for a purpose. He saves you from your sins so that you can, with your every breath, begin to bring life to the world rather than death. As we begin to live the life that God created us to live, this is what God in his love, wants for, in his love for us wants for us. He wants us to live lives that look like Jesus. This isn't the life that earns God's love. It's the life that is lived because we have God's love. It is in the person who lives this way that God's love is perfected, that God's love has fulfilled his purpose. Rather than having someone devoted to sin and wickedness, you now have someone devoted to God's love, justice, and righteousness. And that's where our passage ends, starting midway through verse five. By this, we may know that we are in him. Verse six, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. If you begin to engage with those around you in the myriad ways that Jesus did, then the love of God is doing what it always intended to do. And if you know him, that's exactly what it will do. If you know Jesus's forgiveness, then you will be quick to extend grace to those around you. If you know Jesus's gentleness, then you will be quick to bless your enemies rather than curse them. If you know Jesus's heart for justice, then you will be quick to pursue justice in the world wherever you see injustice. In other words, when you know Jesus, when you see and believe in him, then this is what your life will look like. And so give yourself to the things that he gave himself to. If you want to know him, the invitation is simple. Seek him where he may be found. Seek him, seek and you shall find, Jesus says. Look into the marvelous things displayed in God's word about Jesus. Ask him to reveal himself to you out loud, pray it. Ask, say, God, please reveal yourself to me through the Bible, through the Christian community, this church, imperfect as it is. Find people who know him because they, if they know God, they will want to bring you to him. And when you find Jesus, you know what he'll say to you. He'll look at you and say, come and follow me. And the amazing thing is that as you begin doing the things that he did, loving people the way that he loved them, you'll watch as your affections for him only grow. 
James K. A. Smith wrote a book called You Are What You Love, getting at the two-way street between what you do and what you love. What you love influences what you do, and then what you do also influences what you love. Here's one quote from it. Jesus' command to follow him is a command to align our loves and longings with his, to want what God wants, to desire what God desires, to hunger and thirst after God and crave a world where he is all in all, a vision encapsulated by the shorthand, the kingdom of God. And the orientation of the heart happens from the bottom up through the formation of our habits of desire, learning to love God takes practice. It takes practice. It won't look perfect all at once. But as you grow, you will go from being a spiritual infant, as Paul describes it, to being a spiritual child, to a teenager, to an adult, and you'll begin to have spiritual sons and daughters yourself. As the love of God is made perfect in your life, it's a beautiful cycle. The more you know God, the more you will obey his commandments, and the more you obey his commandments, the more you will come to know and love him and his heart. And as I close, the way in, when we think about what it means, when we think about what it means to, to make disciples, James K. Smith puts it this way. He says, discipleship is a way to curate your heart, to be attentive to and intentional about what you love. Discipleship involves being in the word and prayer, yes, but it also involves personal application, literally applying the word to your life which means to both your head and your hands. It's about bringing your brothers and sisters into your real loves rather than just your aspirations. Here's what I mean. Sometimes when it's time for application in our parish discussions, the answers are something like, okay, this text tells us that we should love other people, so I should love my neighbor. And that's true, and that is an excellent example of application of a passage. There's a number of places in the Bible where that is a good application. But if it stops there, that is a missed opportunity because that's an aspiration. Man, I should love my neighbor more. What you could, go, could do is take the next step and say, guys, this means that we should love our neighbors and I wanna confess to you guys, I don't love my neighbor, I resent him. And then let your parish ask questions. Let them speak words of forgiveness over you, pray for you so that God might change your heart and you can go out afresh with the love of God burning a little bit more brightly in your heart for this neighbor. That is discipleship. Let yourself be fully known. This is Brandon's application last week. And how do we do that? Know that Jesus Christ is your advocate and you don't have to be afraid of confession. I'll, I'll, I'll close with this image that Jesus gives in one of his parables. I'm a little bit long, but this is, I'll, I'll just close here. Jesus tells a story about a young man who demands his father's money. A young man who, who wants his portion of his father's inheritance. It's essentially him looking at his father and saying, I wish that you were dead already. Can I have your money that I would get when you die? And he takes and he runs off and he squanders it, spending it on all kinds of licentious living. And then he has a change of heart. Worldly sorrow would be an appropriate way to say it, but he feels bad for himself. He's hungry. He sees himself starving to death. And he realizes, man, even the servants in my father's house are eating better than I am. And so he goes back and he rehearses his speech to his dad as he walks home. He says, man, I just, I'm, gonna just, I'm not, I'm not going to ask for anything. I'm not going to ask for much. I'm just going to say, dad, I know I'm not, I'm not fit to be your son anymore, but just make me a servant in your house. I'll live with the servants. I'll be a servant. I, I don't deserve to be your son again. So he rehearses this speech. 
and then he gets within eye within within a, within eye shot of his his home, and you know what happens next? It's the parable of the prodigal son. The father. What does the father do? His father throw up his hands and say, "Took took you long enough." No. Jesus tells the parable to communicate the heart of God for sinners. He runs out, the father. He hikes up his robes and he runs out and hugs his son. Gives him his robe, puts a ring on his finger, slaughters the fattened calf, throws a party because his son has come home. That is what it means that we have Jesus as an advocate before the father who is delighted to respond to our confession with forgiveness and cleansing. We don't have to be afraid of confession. We don't have to be afraid of being known. We don't have to be afraid of pursuing obedience and failing because when we fail, we confess and we have a father who's ready to support us. Jesus is a good shepherd. When he says, follow me, he doesn't say, follow me, get in line and then take off running without looking behind him. He's a good shepherd. He's constantly looking back at his sheep, bringing back wayward sheep, being gentle with them, making them lie down and rest, speaking words of comfort as they grow up into maturity. That's the God that we worship. And so come to him, confess to one another boldly as we seek to live lives of obedience that demonstrate that we really do know him. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this morning, for this time that you've given us together in your word. I pray that you would bless us with your presence. Thank you for being present among us as we gather in your name. I pray that you would bless us with your presence continually as we go from this place as we seek to pour our lives into one another, as we seek to pour our lives into the world around us, into our work, into our families. Lord, I pray that you would be with us and that you would help us to know you more. Thank you for the many ways in which you make it available for us to know more things about you. There are so many good resources in this information age to learn more about you. Lord, more than anything, we ask that you, I ask, on behalf of my brothers, sisters, friends here, that you would teach us what it means to know you. We know we need one another to do that, and we know we need your help. So please help us. Thank you for loving us. Teach us, O oh Lord, for our good, for the good of our neighbors, and for your glory. And remind us how much you love us and how patient you are with us when we sin. We love you. We trust you. We need you in Christ's name. Amen.